place it countably. So our first day of session together, I'm at a recent session I just finished up in um, Stroud with my group in Sydney. Um, one of my um, friend students um, <clears throat> was writing to me an email afterwards and saying that um, the practice of meditation like we do in a session is really just turning up, showing up for your life. Just showing up for your life. And when we do this practice together, in a very simple sense, we're just showing up to our life together. Doing it together. That's all it is. Because so much of our life is spent not really being present or actually showing up to our life. And um, as you all know, um, that's the nature of what we do here. You could, people can write many, many different books and say it over and over again about the importance of being present. Um, but if you just said to people, go out and be present, how many people could actually do it? Um, you actually have to train the mind to be present and to be naturally present, not a forced presence. The title of this um, talk today is The Practice of Emptiness in Everyday Life. <clears throat> I'd like to start with a story about a friend of mine. This is not his real name, but we'll call him Ben. Um, but Ben is a friend of mine for years, and he's not a, um, a Dharma practitioner or a meditator but he's a kind of fellow traveller in a way. <clears throat> and he's been telling me for about the last year about issues that he's been having with his employers, with his managers. And uh, he kind of feel, he's a kind of outspo outspoken kind of person. Not in a rude way, but he's outspoken and will speak his mind. Um, and doing it in a culture where it doesn't seem they tolerate dissent very well. And uh, he seemed to have landed himself in a bit of trouble. And then he ended up being micromanaged over his work um, based on policies or whatever that didn't really apply to anyone else. So it was all a bit odd and a bit political um, and, and did without appearing paranoid, it did seem like they were out to harass him in some way or try and get rid of him. And um, <clears throat> so what he did eventually, he was obviously very, very upset about this and very angry about it, about the injustice of it. And in you know, all objective views, it was unjust. And then he invested in an online program about how to communicate better, you know, and how to be more assertive and get your ideas over and so on. <clears throat> and he invested a lot of time and writing into, into saying exactly one, what he wanted to say and to call a meeting with his manager or managers and ask them these questions and say what he wanted to say. So he was all fired up to do it. And Ben goes to a therapist, a, a, a person I don't know very well, but I think quite a, quite a competent therapist who's a, a Buddhist-based therapist. And um, so he went along to his therapist and he told him about this idea of how he was going to confront his managers and so on. It really fired up, expecting his therapist to be his best advocate. You know. And his therapist said, what do you want to do that for? 
What do you want to do that for? You know, like, what, what are you intending to get out of this? You know, what do you think is going to happen? And um, when they examined it further and further, um, uh, after Ben got over his initial shock that his therapist wasn't supporting him in this, in, in this endeavour, start to realise that there was probably nothing good was going to come out of this. It'd be he said, she said, he said, you know, and, and nothing would move because in these kind of political situations it's not based on the truth of matters, it's based on power and people protecting their positions, etc, etc. So nothing much was really was going to come out of it. And his therapist, as a Buddhist therapist, really penetrated into this more and more and more about the emotional investment he had in this and the, all of the intellectual input he put into it. And when <clears throat> Ben came and saw me last week and had coffee with me, his first, I said, how are you going? And, and his first words were, I've discovered nothing. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's good because I've discovered nothing too. So we talked about our mutual nothingness. And uh, what he discovered through that session is that how much he was fixating and holding onto a position, which I agree with him, wasn't unjust, but tightening around it, ruminating on it, investing in it, identifying with it. And then you go into it and you go into it and you penetrate your mindfulness right into it. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Nothing. Dissolved into nothingness. It's like there was a big red puffed up balloon, inflated balloon of injustice and someone put an opinion and it went pop and it all just fizzled out. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the most common questions that comes up when you, when you give introductory talks on Zen is that, well, if you just accept things as they are, that doesn't mean that you, know, you would never be assertive or you wouldn't care about injustice issues or whatever. That wasn't really the point. And what Ben is actually going to do is leave, he's got interviews with other jobs and he's going to get another job. That's his solution to it. Um, but what we were looking at together and what we talked about together, yes, it's unjust, unjust, um, and you can recognise that it's unjust, but there was a need to let go of the anger around it. Mm -hmm. Don't have to. Don't have to get caught up in whether it was just or unjust, whatever. You can, in some situations, you recognise it is, right? But at some point, the anger needs to be let go of, and the whole knot that it's creating within you needs to be dissolved. And uh, so, to put it in Buddhist terms, it was an experience of emptiness. Mm -hmm. Something tight, solid, feels very real that are invested in, just poof, dissolves. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can bring meditation practice to bear on our everyday life. Now this has a, a basis in, this also has a basis in um, Western philosophy and it also has a basis in um, Buddhist practice as well. Um, with um, Socrates and the Socratic kind of dialogues. The nature of all those dialogues is Socrates' opponent, if I can use that word, holding on to a philosophical position that they've invested a whole lot of emotion and identification in, 
I'm a Stoic or I'm an Epicurean or I hold this view. And Socrates just questions, 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 questions until the person actually realises they don't know anything. And they let go of this conceptual construction that they've created. And in the Socratic dialogues, these men, when after you know, hours of being interrogated by Socrates and realising they don't know, then had this kind of experience which almost sounded like a, a Kensho experience, but they described it as being, being um, struck by an electric eel, like a shock, mm -hmm. like a shock of waking up. And it seems like what they're conveying is that there was some kind of liberation that occurred because they weren't, weren't holding on to their fixed view. But also, this approach has, its, has, it, has been really refined in um, Madhyamika, which is a school of Tibetan Buddhism and was developed by um, Nagarjuna, I think lived about in the second century AD, around about there. But it's a method used in Tibetan Buddhism by teachers. Whatever view you're holding on to, they'll go after it and they'll keep, they'll keep at it and at it until you realise that it's empty. Mm -hmm that you've been holding on to something, fixating around something, and there's actually no substance to it. It's insubstantial. And so, it depends what you're emotionally invested in. Like People can have philosophical ideas, but not necessarily identified with them or invested in them. Um, it depends where our emotional investment and identification is in our views. We may not be an intellectual person. Some people invest it very deeply in, in their religion. Well, I'm a Christian, you know, and there's all the, all the identification with being a Christian or a Buddhist, you know, or a Muslim, whatever it might be. And all the, all the identification is around that religious um, view or identity. Or it might be around various ethical positions we have, you know, or political positions. Um, it's very different when we identify, identify and fixate around something and tighten up around it and we create an adversarial position with others. Like we were talking about just before session started, you know, Republicans never talking to Democrats, like people in different tribes that are separated off from one another and don't see their common humanity. But, we can look at that in terms of looking at the intellectual kind of views we have and examining them. It's not about analysing them, it's just about staying present with this sense of fixatedness or being right about something. And physically it manifests as a kind of tension or tightness in our body somewhere, like a knot that we tighten around. The Tibetan Buddhists have a good word for it which is shenpa. Shenpa means whatever it is that hooks you, whatever, whatever it is you're hung up about. Mm -hmm. And we all have them in various forms or another. Um, so people, some people get hooked up over philosophical issues, some people get hooked up over political things, religious, etc. But it'd be probably fair to say that nearly everyone gets hooked up over psychological issues and relationship issues to one degree or another, and you can apply this same method here. One of the um, great contributions that my teacher Joko Beck 
brought to Zen. Um, is she integrated Zen with um, psychology? And it wasn't the same as psychotherapy, or it was a Zen form of therapy, you could say. But she took the concepts of cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, and um, the fact that people hold core beliefs about themselves, like negative ruminations about themselves, and they're fixed beliefs. They're not, they're not fluid beliefs, they're fixed beliefs. Um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy, um, I'm stupid, I'm unlovable, I'm bad. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things. Most people, if they look into it closely enough, hold on to certain views of themselves. And what's delusional about it is that they're fixed. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that they're negative, but they're fixed. Fixed view. And they cause people a lot of suffering. So what Joko brought to Zen practice, a, a gift that she brought to Zen practice, is helping people to identify these fixed views they had about themselves that created suffering and not do a CBT thing of looking at them rationally and replacing them with positive thoughts, etc., etc., because that's just another fixation. But just to observe them. What, what, is, what is this experience of unworthiness? What all the emotions associated with it, the thoughts associated with it, the physical tension, contraction associated with it. I'll just be curious about it. I'll just observe it dispassionately and I'll keep looking into it. I'll keep looking into it. And if you do that long enough, it dissolves, just like Ben's experience. It doesn't become right or wrong or whatever. It just, it's just you see into the emptiness of it. You see into the insubstantiality of it. Nothing is fixed. Um, doing relationship counselling, I've developed a, um, a variation on that in working with couples, which seems couples give me regular feedback that it's really helpful to them. So, as you would know, if you're in a relationship or been in one, is that when you're not getting on with your partner um, you, and you're in an argument or whatever or a standoff, is you can start to ruminate about them in negative kind of ways and go do a character analysis of all their bad faults and so on, you know, and you create fixed views of the other person. And then what happens is that we're, the more we repeat those phrases and words to ourselves and invest in it and identify with it, the more we are not relating to our partner, we're relating to a belief about our partner and we're relating to a fixed belief about our partner. And you know, just as we do the practice of labelling with ourselves here and we keep on labelling the different experiences that come and go, when we, when we bring that practice to ourselves, we realise there's no fixed self. You know, so it's just a stream of consciousness with things coming and going. And how I was five minutes ago is not necessarily how I am now. And if you apply that same principle to a partner or a friend or a um, parent-child relationship, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, when you have a fixed view of that person, say that they're selfish, do you know, or 
um, they're withdrawn, you know, or yes, they've got an anxious attachment style, whatever it might be. Um, we've fixated them. Now we wouldn't fixate ourselves. Well, that's what we learn through meditation. So why we want to fixate someone else's behaviour? As soon as we've got a this fixated view of them, it's like a label they can't get out of. And it doesn't matter what they do; they can never be any different from that. So we're not we're not relating to the flesh and blood person anymore. We're relating to our idea of them. So the intervention I, I come up with with couples who are caught in that kind of conflict. I introduce them to the idea, I said, do you know like when you're, when, you're, when you're fighting and so on, you tend to ruminate and have negative views about the other person and 99% and of couples go, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I do that. Um, well, I what I invite them in to do as a mindfulness exercise and a homework task to take away with during the week is I want you to really notice and pay attention when you're ruminating about your partner in this negative kind of way, and I want you to label it, like saying that Bill's selfish, or whatever. And what I want you to do is label it, identify what it is, and then just come back to your breath and your body. And I don't want you to get caught up in whether your view of your partner is true or whether it's false. And if you've been living with someone for five years or ten years, you know them pretty well, there's probably a grain of truth in it. But the point here is not about whether it's true or false. It's rather that if you ruminate on it in a fixed kind of way and you go round and round in it and you invest in it in being right, that's what's destructive to your relationship and to you. Mm -hmm. Because you're living in your head, you're not living in... in present moment experience anymore. And so I suggest to people that they do this and, and um, very, very frequently um, people come back the next session and say, that's the best thing I ever did for a while. You know, that, that really helped. Because if you stop investing in a fixed view of another person and you sort of throw a spanner in the work so you just can't keep doing it in a habitual way, um, it allows something new to come forward, something different to come forward. It's like you're on a railroad track before, you can't get off it. As soon as you throw a spanner in the works and you, and you, and you break up the habit, well, whatever's there can emerge mm -hmm. with fresh eyes and you actually see the person as they are in that moment right? and in the next moment and the next moment. And sometimes they're kind and sometimes they're indifferent and sometimes they're insensitive, sometimes they're loving, sometimes they're withdrawn, doesn't matter, but they're, no, they're not a fixed person anymore. And you can relate to them more as a three-dimensional person. And you can turn up and be actually more present to them and being present is the essence of intimacy. You can't be intimate without, without presence. Mm -hmm. So these whole, these whole principles of actually identifying fixated shempas right, in our experience, identifying, recognising them, seeing how much we invest in them and then dissolving them, seeing into the insubstantiality of them is, is liberating. It's, it's how you actually apply 
Zen practice to everyday life. Not philosophical or religious really, it's just everyday life. Um, it's also, of course, in the um, not just in Madhyamika, um, all schools of Buddhism have found ways of actually challenging fixed concepts and so on in practitioners. And one of the methods we do it we do in, we have in Zen is koan study. Koan study is a way of challenging fixed views people have, and a lot of the Zen stories are challenging the views of monks who have a big identification and emotional investment in being Buddhists. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, you'll have a, a Buddhist monk comes along to a, to a Zen teacher and says, um, I always find these questions amusing, but how do you save all the beings in the three worlds? To a Zen teacher. And the Zen teacher says, this hoe cost me one dollar. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a bizarre conversation. But here is someone invested in some religious idea, do you know, of a grand, grand idealism, do you know, of saving all beings. And the teacher responds in terms of everyday life. This hoe cost me one dollar. Coming, bringing it back to the basics into the present moment. Mm -hmm. Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Ask that fence post over there. And to bring it back to out of concept concepts, out of these fixed views into what is actually present right now, mm -hmm. what, what we can be mindful to right now. But like I said before, it depends what we have a big emotional investment in is where we'll be hung up. We not, may not be hung up about religion, politics, whatever, but we're hung up about something that we're fixated on. To be, to invest a sense of security in being right about something is a very false form of security. And why we do it is that we we, we're, we live in an insecure world in the sense that everything is changing, everything is impermanent, everything is insubstantial, there's no solid ground. And most people are so uncomfortable in that, they want to cling on to something that's right or true. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a false security. And what the experience is, and you can only know it through your own experience, it's not because someone tells you, um, but what you can find through Zen experience, and hopefully what you'll touch on during session as we go along, that when you, when, you, when you see the insubstantiality of the things that you're hanging on to, the experience is not one of falling apart. The, the experience is one of freedom. You don't fall apart. You don't go to pieces. You, you don't end up a huge anxious ball of anxiety. That wasn't Ben's experience. Ben, ben, was, ben was relaxed. He was in his body. You know, he was present again. Um, but that's our fear. We've got to keep holding on to our position, onto our fixed position, but it's a false security. And when you, when you, when you 
um, renounce that, when you surrender that into recognise the, the transience of life and the insubstantiality of life, that's where you find yourself on your, 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 you're on your own two feet again. Mm -hmm. You actually become paradoxically more grounded in that world because you're not at, not at odds with it. Um, as mindfulness becomes more popular in our, our culture, um, and it's very helpful, it helps people to recognise um, in a psychological way emotions that they're identified with and thoughts that they're identified with which are not really helpful to them in any kind of way. And they can practise mindfulness to dissolve those things. And that's good. But one of the things that's missing in secular mindfulness, and it's something that we examine too in, in, in Zen practice, it's all very fine to disidentify with emotions and thoughts that we might have, but what about the knower? What about the observer? What about the witness? If you speak to most people, they've got this sense that, oh yeah, I can identify, I can observe my thoughts and my feelings and see that they're not really me, they're just sort of transient, you know, bits of energy that go through me. But most people experience their life in the sense that there is a knower behind there who collects all these experiences and that's, that's me, that's my soul, you know, whatever, that's who I really am. But if we turn the spotlight of mindfulness on that, is there a knower? <laughs> is there a witness? Is there an observer? Is there some fixed thing in there which is you? So in Zen practice, not only do we look into the emptiness of emotions and thoughts, what is known, we're also looking into this experience of the self that thinks that it knows all these things. Mm -hmm. And that's empty too. Um, I'm playing with language a bit here. There is such a thing as observing or witnessing. It's a process, it's a verb. There's no knower, there's no witnesser. There's no observer. There's not a thing up there between your ears that's permanently there all the time. Consciousness is a stream of consciousness. And we all know that from observing our experience in meditation, you know, period after period. It's a stream that comes and goes. There's no fixed point in it. Who you were ten minutes ago is what, not what you are now. Who you were one year ago it's not what you are now. Um, this idea would freak most people out. Mm -hmm. Imagine an ABC program on primetime television broadcasting to the nation that they don't really know who they are. They have no self. Everyone would be running off to their therapists. Mm -hmm. It's a spooky idea for most people and it's an unexamined idea. Well, it's an un unexamined phenomena for most people. But that's also what we touch on in Zen practice. When, when the Buddha 
says that everything is empty, he really means that everything is empty. Mm -hmm. And uh, but again, like I said before, when we when we see into the nature of the emptiness of the self, no mind, no self, mm -hmm, as well as phenomena. Um, that's what so many people through the centuries have recognised is the, is the liberating experience. And it's ordinary. It's, not, it's nothing out of this world. It's just ordinary. It's not like, you know, flashlights going on, you know, wow, I've had this great insight. It's kind of like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, sort of should have known that in the first place kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So... Clinging, self-clinging, attachment to ideas, self, emotions, thoughts, etc., etc., um, are the cause of our frustration in life and the cause of our suffering. And as you will know, um, I'm only telling you what you already know and reinforcing it, the more we examine that and the more we let go of those fixed positions, um, the more our life becomes enriching and intimate and loving um, and connected. So, that's the work that we had ahead of us now and into the rest of this session. Thank you.